Hi, I'm Jennifer Stewart, and I'm the President and CEO of the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association. Canada is changing, and so are the sectors that support it. On Pump Chats, we're taking a deep dive into what Canada's most prominent fuel and convenience companies are doing amidst a pandemic, how they're innovating to be sustainable, and we'll also be speaking with sector experts to get some crystal ball predictions. Buckle up and get ready to hear how our fuel and convenience sector is making waves on Pump Chats. Today on Pump Chats, I am so pleased to be speaking with our very own Vice President of Government Relations, Michelle Coates. Michelle is a seasoned vet when it comes to advocacy, having worked on the Hill for many years and in the private sector. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you to get some insight on everything that's going on. So obviously, Michelle, south of the border, we had a bit of a nail biter uh, in terms of the election, and it just appears as of yesterday, President Trump is willing to concede the Oval Office to President-elect Biden. Mm -hmm. What do you think a Biden victory means for Canadian oil and gas? Such a great question. I mean, so a couple of different things. I think we have to sort of pay attention to in the months ahead. Like it or not, Trump actually in some ways posed probably less of a threat to Canadian oil and gas. He was pretty much business as usual from that perspective. Biden, though, there's some potential there to create a little bit of drama. But, you know, we'll see how that plays out. I think what's important to keep in mind for Biden is he has been pretty clear in his mandate that uh, he's not supportive of pipelines, which is going to be an issue for Keystone XL. So mm-hmm. that's something that we're going to have to track. But on the other hand, um, one thing that uh, that Biden made very clear during his campaign is the elimination of new fracking in the U.S., which you know logically could actually present some opportunities for Canadian oil because if they're not you know doing that kind of digging in the U.S., they might be looking, you know, north, north of the border. Right. So, so we'll see how that plays out. But again, in the absence of a pipeline, how does that work in reality? Now, some are suggesting, though, and I think Premier Kenny is one of them, that because the Canadian government has already invested so much in terms of, um, uh, you know, U.S. contracts, you know, there's a lot of U.S.-based companies that are involved in the construction of Keystone XL, Uh, pipeline, that it might make it that much harder for Biden to nix the project because that means U.S. jobs, you know, in the middle of uh, a pandemic and, you know, looking into recovery, those are jobs that, uh, you know, he might very well want to keep on, on, uh, you know, on the, the job role. So it remains to be seen how that will play out. But I do think Um, The overarching priority for Biden, similar to Prime Minister Trudeau here in the Liberal government, is he's looking at uh, energy transition and he is not shy about discussing that or championing that as a priority for his government. Now, that's a, that's a perfect lead into my next question is energy transition. And clearly, as an association, you know, we are committed to emission reduction and means that achieve that. And, you know, it's it's a bit confusing because you see various provincial governments enhance the renewable fuel mandates uh, mm-hmm. to higher renewable blends, which certainly reduces emissions. You see a hydrogen strategy being released. Uh, just last week, there was the Net Zero Accountability Act that uh, Trudeau's government announced. But you're also seeing complete bans on petroleum, you know, whereby in, in many of the strategies that are being released, petroleum is part of the solution, you know, blended with other 
other renewables, certainly, but certainly still part of the solution. What's your interpretation from an advocacy perspective on how the government can ensure that, you know, they achieve their emission reduction targets, but also loop in our, our sector? Yeah, And I think this is something that has been a real struggle, especially for the federal government, because, you know, the the fact remains, even though uh, the federal liberals are very clear about their desire to see an energy transition, you know, consumers are still buying petroleum powered cars. Mm -hmm. And that will still be the case for, you know, at least the next few decades. Right. So but I think at the same time, provinces are understanding that they, too, have to think about transition because the public very much cares about climate change as a, as a you know, a, a priority issue. At least that was the case in the last federal election. Things obviously are changing right now with uh, a pandemic. But let's just assume for argument's sake that, you know, we've got a vaccine in place. We can sort of get back to normal climate change. I would I think it's, you know, highly likely will sort of creep back up into, you know, the general public's top tier bucket of things that they care about moving forward. So I think what that means for, you know, associations and and, and members is we have to really be more boastful in showcasing the work that is being done by members to um, move the needle in the right direction when it comes to lowering carbon emissions and and things Mm -hmm. like that. We have a role to play and we can't ignore the issue. The reality is, and I think this is fair to say, an energy transition is on the horizon. It is not right. going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen 10 years from now. We have a runway. And I think net zero you know, gives us pretty well a 30-year runway before the real hammer starts to come down. And we mm-hmm. have to keep in mind that in that 30 years, there will be other governing parties at play uh, and the landscape and policies will change and shift and adapt accordingly. But members need to be thinking proactively now. And we can't just put, you know, our heads in the sand and pretend like things are going to go back the way they were. They are not. Consumer behavior is going to change in time. Um, so, So I think whatever, you know, companies can be doing now to plan ahead will be really, really critical. And, you know, um, playing, I think it's always important when you're dealing with advocacy and trying to make your pitch to government to show them how you are helping them meet their objectives, finding ways to work together. And this isn't about, you know, some kind of after school special, giving each other a hug and a pat on the back. (laughs) This is really meaningful work. And I think, you know, the oil and gas industry has done a lot that they can talk about and and promote with government so that they can see that, look, we are a partner at the table and Mm -hmm. care very much about our environmental footprint um, and want to work with them to come up with meaningful policy that, you know, ensures long lasting economic recovery post pandemic with regards to our natural resources, because they are still a critically important part of our economy. And thinking for for the long term future of um, you know environmental responsibility for all Canadians. I think that's wonderful, and I also think that our sector hasn't done potentially the best job at telling our own story. Right, we're often reactive to policies and pieces of legislation as they come through, uh, provincially or federally. But I do agree with you. The time is now to really tell our story and tell it in a very impactful way about how we can be part of that solution, whether that's renewables or offering hydrogen at retail sites and and what that looks like. Uh, So, Michelle, the fall economic statement is coming next week. Uh, Where do you think the Liberals are heading with the statement? Yeah, I I think that 
Trudeau foreshadowed what we can expect in in, uh, the economic statement. The green economy, this is still this government's number one priority. And they make no bones about the fact that in their view, you can absolutely have a strong, stable economy and fight climate change at the same time. So I think much of what we're going to see is um, the statement will include the spending to date on the pandemic. I think that will be the number one priority. Like it or not, we're still fighting a pandemic. So Mm -hmm. a recovery statement, I don't think is likely, but I think we'll see some nuggets of what this government intends for a future budget. When that budget will come, I mean, that's the big question of the day. Uh, You know, this is the first time we've seen uh, an economic statement or update, I should say, from this government, uh, you know, in quite some time. So I anticipate that next week it'll be a lot more of, you know, what is the plan for vaccination, where investments are going, uh, how that money is being spent, more relief for businesses. I think that's going to be a really important feature, what that looks like in real terms uh, for industry. And then, of course, how we're going to support Canadians in this transition time. Uh, And then I expect that we'll see some hints about what that means for uh, the climate change policies. And you're going to see, I think, some hints of greater investments on green energy files. I I suspect that we're going to see a lot more in terms of, you know, ZEV. They're going to piggyback on the latest announcement uh, for net zero, what policies look like there. Although I doubt we're going to see any significant milestone commitments in the fall economic statement for that particular piece of legislation. Um, but yeah, so so I think it, I, I expect that it's going to be sort of a lay of the land of where we're at today, how spending has unfolded, and then some some glimpses of the future of what we can expect to come. So less industry specific and more kind of your general political acumen. Do you think we will see the opposition support the statement? You know, we're dealing in different times. It's a pandemic. Or do you think it will be politics as usual? Mm. I think it's going to be politics as usual. Uh, I think you can fully predict that the Conservative Party will find reason not to support the fall economic statement. You know, if if my assessment is right, and this is largely a reflection of of what has been spent and, uh, you know, how uh, this government plans to manage, you know, the rollout of a vaccination campaign and, you know, just dealing with the pandemic uh, from a business perspective. The Conservatives are going to push back. I mean, they're already laying that foundation. They are not impressed by this government's response plan from everything from the timing of delaying closures at the border to the use of uh, at-home testing kits for vaccination, rapid testing, and so forth. They will be looking for reasons to um, criticize the government and to avoid support. But Here's the thing. The Liberals have the NDP in their corner right now. And I think that they will survive any non-confidence vote that comes out of this particular fall economic statement because of the NDP. Um, I I see no reason why the NDP wouldn't support the statement. Do you think we're at risk of an election, Michelle, over the course of the pandemic? I don't think... hmm. You know, okay, so I my my instinct on that is it's not going to happen right now. I think an election is coming. I, I do feel that way. I think regardless of what opposition parties might think or feel about how uh, the Liberal government has performed, Canadians are still broadly supportive of the Trudeau government, right. um, which means, you know, they're going to call an election or trigger an election when it's convenient for them. Uh, they're in a minority parliament setting. It, you know, they can be the architects of their own demise if they want to be. 
Um, but I, I don't think that it would be strategic for Trudeau to trigger an election right now before the rollout of a, you know, a mass vaccination uh, campaign, I'm calling it a campaign, but really whatever that vaccination protocol looks like across the country, that really has to be the number one priority because I don't see how, until that's done, how the government can think about any kind of recovery plan or, or implementing a recovery plan. So I, I would predict that we could be looking more spring, even fall for a possible election. But again, the Liberals really have to do something to, I think, annoy the NDP, because right now the NDP seem to be perfectly content in backing the government. And do you think there's an appetite for an election from the Canadian public? I don't. I don't actually think there's an appetite for that right now. I, I do think with provincial elections that have happened of late, voter turnout has been reasonable. I think those governments understood that public opinion was on their side. So folks showed up, well, maybe didn't show up at the polls. They casted their ballots, you know, um, through the mail and that worked out well. But I think that the federal government needs to play that a bit more cautious at this mm-hmm. particular point. Um, because I think most Canadians are more concerned about, you know, how they are managing their children being home while trying right. to homeschool or, you know, how they're putting food on the table or paying for their hydro bill than wanting to cast a ballot in a federal mm-hmm. election right now. Yeah, no, fair enough. So back to the sector, Michelle, what are the latest trends you're seeing on EVs, carbon pricing, hydrogen strategies, everything kind of coming down the pipeline for lack of the pun? Yeah, you know, I think this is an interesting topic really for the industry writ large because we talked about transition earlier and the fact is it's kind of already happening you know and and associations and members are already readily engaged so um i think what's interesting on carbon pricing is we are seeing some shifts now at the provincial level uh you know notably from ontario and new brunswick who just recently in the last uh, you know few months saw the federal government approve their sort of made in Ontario, made in New Brunswick carbon pricing plans, if you will, with some reluctance, though, on the federal government's part, um, you know, looking into it. I think the Fed still largely feel in their cases for those two provinces, their pricing doesn't go far enough, but just enough that they could get approval. And I think that sort of quells or takes sort of the, the steam out of the Supreme Court fight right now that several provinces initiated, I should say, with regards to carbon pricing and uh, jurisdiction issues. Um, so, so we'll see how that evolves, but it is interesting that the federal government is sort of in a way, I think, extending an olive branch to these provinces, but I think the expectation is that they'll be following up to see what these pricing right. plans look like in the future. Now with Zev, this is particularly interesting to me, especially in Ontario, because you know, it wasn't too long ago that the Ford government was eliminating um, basically subsidies to consumers to buy EV vehicles. So they got rid of those incentives, but now are investing a quite significant amount of money into industry to actually see companies manufacturing EV. So they're sort of switching who those subsidies are going to, which is a very interesting choice for the Ford government. And I think surprised a lot of people because I think many don't see sort of um, the Ford government as being um, Ford government and environment as being, you know, mutually exclusive things. But in fact, I think Ford, he's a politician, understands that climate change is still an important issue for Ontarians. Uh, and Zav is an attractive fit, especially when you think about job production. You're looking at manufacturing jobs. 
So, uh, so that is, I think, a really interesting tell. And of course, Quebec's recent announcement to ban all new um, sale of gas cars by 2030, Mm -hmm. focusing, you know, heavily on um, electric vehicles is, is an interesting look at what retailers need to be thinking about in the future. And then I think just on the last point there, your high, the point on hydrogen is interesting as well. Both Alberta and Ontario have put forward strategies of what sort of a hydrogen hub in their areas might look like. So it just, again, it goes to this broader narrative of governments really are trying to think about energy in a much broader way uh, and how, you know, there's more than one solution, right? We don't have to put our eggs in one particular basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we're going to see the conversation, at least at the provincial level, really evolve. Right. Uh, I think we're going to see the province take more of a role in terms of proactively offering the Fed solutions for alternative solutions to uh, evolving energy as we move on in the future. That's really interesting. And, you know, certainly we know that you'll be monitoring that for us, which is excellent because there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces, there's a lot of regulation at the provincial level. And, you know, obviously, federally, there's there's much happening as well. So we need to keep an eye on all of it. It has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Michelle, and we know that you'll be joining us regularly to provide kind of lay of the land updates that I know our listeners will be uh, certainly interested in. So thanks very much for being here today. Oh, thanks so much, Jen. It's great to join you and to, to have a chance to connect with our members. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen and subscribe to Pump Chats anywhere you find your podcasts. Until next time.